Amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 9 through 15. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. We're going to finish all of chapter 2 today. Uh, we're now in part 5 of our series, Church Life. Say Church Life. Uh, before we dive into the text, as always, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, verses 1 through 8. And I gave you seven points quickly here. The first point was the mandate, say the mandate, verse 1a, Paul, what he does, he gives a mandate, a directive, instruction to pray, and what Paul is driving at when beginning his instruction on prayer is he seems to be demonstrating the priority, say priority, of prayer in the corporate church life. The second point was the means, say that, the means, and verses 1b through verse 3 and Paul describes the, the wide categories of our communication with God. And these are the various means of prayer that should be offered when we as God's people come together. And they were requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. And Paul then goes from all kinds of prayer uh, to now praying for all people generally. In verse 1c, he says, be made for everyone. Say everyone. And then Paul says to pray for all people specifically. Uh, verse 2a, for kings and all those in authority. And when we pray as we should pray, the result will be peacefulness internally and a quietness externally, which produce in us lives of godliness and purity. Someone say amen. In verse 3, he says, This is good and pleasing, and pleases, please, excuse me, pleases God our Savior. In other words, when we as believers lift up our leaders, God looks down upon us with pleasure. The third point was the mission. Say that. The mission, that's in verse 4. He says, who wants all men, all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So God wants people to be saved. If you believe that, say amen. Because that's his heart. That's his desire. That's why we ought to be praying for people. The fourth point was the mediator. Say that. The mediator, verses 5 through 6, and Paul shows us how someone must be saved. He says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men and the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given, in other words, witness in its proper time, that Jesus was the testimony of God revealed to man at the proper time. And Jesus gave himself as a payment, say payment, for our sins, and he put himself in our place and received the punishment and wrath from God the Father that we deserve. The fifth point was the messenger, say that. Messenger in verse 7, and this is the message that Paul preached, and it was the message of salvation only through Jesus Christ crucified. And so Paul began his ministry with an equal emphasis on both the Jew and the Gentile, but because of the continued rejection by the Jews, Paul began to emphasize his ministry to the Gentile. The sixth point was the men. Say the men. And that's in verse 8a, and Paul challenges the men, the men, about their responsibility to be the initiator to pray. Amen? And the seventh point was the manner. Say the manner. And that's in verse 8b. This is how we should pray. He says to lift up. Say lift up. Holy hands in prayer. And it was customary. It was a customary standard when praying and to spread one's uh, hands before God. But here in the text, Paul's primary point uh, is not posture of the body, but posture of the, say it, of the heart. Then he says, without anger or disputing. And Paul is saying that genuine prayer in the context of the church needs to take place in a place where there is not drama 
Okay? Not drama between people that is unresolved because that's inconsistent with what we're doing in prayer. And we are to work out anger and relational problems in private so that we can pray without hypocrisy in public. Amen? This now brings us to today's text, and the title of the message is Women in Worship. Say that, in worship. Now, the instructions in this text though written about women, are relevant for all worshipers. Okay, we can all get something out of this, right? Amen. So two points, if you're ready, say yes. Number one is her responsibility. Say that, her responsibility. Write that down. And then we're going to look at verse 9. And Paul writes, I also, the King James renders it as in like manner also. The New American Standard Bible says likewise. And this refers back to Paul's challenge to the men about their responsibility to be the initiator to pray. And, and, and he then goes into a lengthy admonition to the women. And he now challenges the women and begins his instruction by addressing their responsibility when it comes to their outward appearance. Now remember, the text is focused on women who are believers. Okay, we're talking about believing women. If you got it, say got it. So Paul says, I also, in like manner, likewise, want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. The New American Standard Bible renders it like this. Likewise, I want women to adorn. Adorn means to make something beautiful by decorating, right? Themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. And I want to stop there because apparently some of the women there in the church of Ephesus were trying to gain respect or attention by looking beautiful rather than becoming Christ-like in character. You guys got it? And sadly, our Western society has virtually complete, completely abandoned this idea of modesty. So women should dress in such a way that they will not draw undue attention toward themselves and tempt men. And you see, dressing in a seductive way to flaunt what you got is not honoring God. Now I want to say this. This doesn't mean that all the burden of responsibility is on the woman. Okay, a woman can dress perfectly, modestly, and men may still be tempted to think impurely toward her. Guys, we got to be careful with our eyes, okay? Uh, when you look the first time, look away, and don't look a second time, and don't, and don't get away with saying, well, I took a long, long, long look, okay, because that gets you in trouble. You guys with me, okay? So we have a responsibility as well. And you see, a godly woman should realize that there are some aspects of her physical beauty that is not for public consumption. Now I want to read on. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. Now Paul's point here is not that braided hair and jewelry or expensive clothes is wrong or sinful, okay? Okay, ladies? But the motives are. Okay, follow me here. You see, in in the culture of Ephesus, braided hair was a luxurious status symbol. It required a lot of time to do their hair and uh, in financial costs. And apparently some of the women in the church there at Ephesus, as I said earlier, were trying to gain respect and attention by looking beautiful. You know, doing their braided hair and the jewelry, expensive clothes. In other words, dressed to impress rather than becoming Christ-like in character. Now listen, ladies, okay? This doesn't mean you shouldn't seek to present yourself in the most attractive way. 
Okay? The idea of beauty, by the way, the idea of beauty is a biblical idea. If you read the Old Testament, you see Sarah and, and Rebecca and Rachel and Bathsheba and Esther and the Shulamite princess. You guys know the story of the Song of Solomon, among others, were beautiful women. They were beautiful women. And I believe women ought to look and feel beautiful. I believe they ought to look nice. I believe they ought to look their best. Amen? Praise God for makeup. Amen? I mean, praise God. You know? I mean, just praise God. You know? Well, if you're, hey, if you're a man and you're ugly, you got no hope. You guys with me? Okay? And I want, Paul's not saying let your braids down, take off your jewelry, wipe off your makeup off your face and wear shabby clothes. He's not saying to go Amish, okay? He's not saying that. And Paul's point is, don't let your identity become wrapped up in outward appearance. In other words, don't let glitter and God, God, godliness, godly, godliness replace godliness. You see, it's character, not clothes. It's holiness, not hair. It's godliness, not Gucci. It's temperament, not shopping at Tiffany's that makes a woman a godly woman. Now notice Paul, what he does, he contrasts verse 9, the verse we just read, by saying this in verse 10. But with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. The New American Standard Bible says for women making a claim to godliness. And Paul is saying that a woman should make herself beautiful not primarily by the way she fashions her hair or by the clothes she wears, but rather by means of good works. In other words, he's saying it's how she lives, not how she looks. That matters. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Amen? 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Say the heart. And I want to tell you, listen, God doesn't value smoking hot, okay? He isn't interested in whether or not you are a size 5 or whatever it might be. He doesn't even give you extra points if you're a supermodel. You guys with me? He doesn't place value on outward beauty. No, he doesn't. He looks at your heart. Which is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, you might know this, right? Verses 3 through 4, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. I love that. Don't you love that? It is precious in the sight of God. It appeals to God. The inner heart of a woman appeals to God. I'm not saying you can't look nice, but you should spend more time on the inner, amen, person of the heart. I want to point out something also. Look at the text again. He says, who professes to worship God. The other translation says, making a claim to godliness. That phrase is making an open pronouncement. In other words, what she's doing, she is emphatically declaring to a watching world that God is her audience. Did you get that? That God is her audience and she seeks to live for him and she seeks to please him. 
And she's not known for what she wears, but how she lives. She's all about good work. She's all about serving others. She's all about caring for others. She's all about living for God and pleasing God. And this is what Paul is driving at. This is the, the reasoning behind his words here in the text. And he wants Christian women to know that it's not the outward appearance that matters in the end. It's not. It's the good works of godliness in the heart. Listen, ladies, when Jesus is enthroned in your heart, and he should be, amen, when he is enthroned in your heart, he will make his lordship known by how he fine-tunes your outer person. Amen? Because your real beauty is not defined by outer appearance. And you should look nice, amen? But rather by inner relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you ready for the lesson? Here's a lesson. Dress properly and put your emphasis on godliness. Amen? Why is it so quiet? Come on. Amen? Amen? Dress properly and put your emphasis on godliness. Question, question, ladies. Are you a conduit for others to see Christ in you? Huh? And I got to say, there's, there's many, many women here at Cry Out who are a conduit. And I can just see Christ through their lives. And you, you are just amazing women. And I thank God for you that you, you dress properly and you put your emphasis on godliness. Amen. And I praise God for you. Amen. Say her responsibility. We're going to spend most of our time here. Number two is her role. Say that. Her role. Write that down. We'll look at verse 11. And Paul says, a woman should learn. I want to stop there. Listen, when Paul calls for women to learn, it's an imperative. It's a command. Say command uh, in the original language. And this is significant and important. And I'll tell you why. Because women didn't have a high status, excuse me, high status in Jewish society. Now, while I'm not excluded from, you know, um, attending a synagogue, neither were they encouraged to learn. In fact, friends, most Jewish rabbis refused to teach women. And many of them said that it was like throwing pearls to swine. And the women's status was not much better in Greek society either. So thank God for Christianity, right? Talk about liberating the woman, amen? It's Christianity. Let's read on. In quietness, he says, and full submission. A woman should learn in quietness. Your Bibles might say silence. That's not a good translation. And full submission. So the implication of Paul's instructions for them to learn in quietness and submission might imply, the, might imply some were causing, listen now, a disturbance in the worship services by interrupting. And he wrote a similar admonition to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. We covered that when we went through the series of Undivided in 1 Corinthians. You see, in these ancient cultures, and you got to get this, men and women sat in separate sections. They're not sitting like we're sitting today, right? We're kind of like men and women here, right? In, in, in those cultures, the men sat on one side, the women on the other side. In fact, in some synagogues, they had a veil where the men were in the front and Behind the veil, the women were there. So it's, it was a lot different. And the thought is that women interrupted the church service by shouting questions and comments to their husbands during the service. So you got the women on this side and the men on this side, or perhaps behind the veil, and the wife says, hey, babe, 
Yeah, serious. Hey, babe, you know, um, was that right what the preacher just said? And what Paul says, and we talked about this in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, ah, wait till you get home to ask your husband. Right? Which means that we should know the word, guys. Amen? Some scholars even say that the women were calling out their husbands. Like the preacher would say something like, pray with your wives. My husband doesn't do that. Seriously. So they were interrupting, interrupting the service. You guys got it? So quietness doesn't mean absolute silence. In fact, quietness is translated peaceful. Say peaceful. And so what it does, it carries the idea without contention. Say without contention. And Paul calls them to learn in a peaceful way without contention. In other words, they shouldn't be be sources of discord in congregational worship or disruptive or to interfere with the teaching in any way. And you see, this isn't about not speaking at all, but about interrupting. You guys with me so far? Let's go back to the text. And full submission. The word submission, okay, it means she, she puts herself completely and totally under the authority of the one teaching. In the Greek, the word submission is the word hupotasso. Say hupotasso. You guys should know this because we covered this definition many times Right here at Cry Out, hupotasso. It means to rank under. Say, to rank under. Say that, to rank under. It has to do with respecting and acknowledged order of authority. Warren Wiersbe said it like this. Anyone who has served in the armed forces knows that rank has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. A colonel is higher in rank than a private, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the colonel is a better man than the private. He goes on to say it only means that the colonel has a higher rank and therefore more authority. You guys got it? It's not about value or ability. It's about authority, higher rank. Now, this has application to both men and women. Stay with me now, okay? As we, as, as we are all under someone's authority in public worship. There's a leader in your ministry, right? Somewhere in the ministry, right? So we should submit without what? Contention. Submit without contention to the pastors the teachers who are teaching, to the worship leaders, to the elders, to the deacons, to the various other leaders God has given us in public worship. And when we don't, it causes disorder in worship. You guys with me? And we know that God is not a God of disorder, but a God of order. Amen? Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. I want to stop there, okay? Paul is not commanding Women to never teach. Now, now, now it's, poss- it's a possibility, possibility that Paul is prohibiting the Ephesian women, not all women, from teaching. Possibility, okay? Perhaps the Ephesian women were susceptible to the false teaching that was going around in that church or the churches there in Ephesus and were not yet mature enough and did not have enough biblical knowledge to discern the truth. So that's a possibility. But I want to say this, the Bible, say the Bible, is clear that women are permitted to teach. And all the women said, Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, is the Great Commission. Say the Great Commission. And the Great Commission includes all believers, not just men, all believers. Say all believers. Therefore, go make make disciples of all what nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, includes everybody, 
to obey everything I have commanded you. In Titus chapter 2, verse 3, Titus 2, verse 3, older women, right, are called to teach what? Younger women. Got it? In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, we see that Timothy, uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother were his primary Bible teachers. In Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26, Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla, Aquila is her husband, Priscilla the wife, Priscilla taught Apollos the great preacher. She wasn't sharing her testimony with him. She was sharing theology. She was setting him straight about Jesus Christ. You guys got that? So women are permitted to teach. And I want to say this here at Cry Out Christian Fellowship. We have some amazing women who are amazing Bible teachers. Amen? Amen? I mean, man, they know the Word and they can teach. Amen? So I'm down with that. Amen? So women are permitted to teach, but in their teaching ministry, they must not lord it over men. That's what Paul's driving at, okay? He's driving. They must not assume authority in the church and take a place of a man. That's what Paul's driving at. Now, I want to say this. I think there are going to be times and situations where there are no men to step up to be pastors, and God will use whom he will use. But the preferred method is for the spiritual leader in the church and in the home to be a man. Amen? Now, Chapter 3, verse 2, we'll get into that next week, says this. Now the overseer, that word overseer is synonymous with pastor, elder, and bishop, must be above reproach, the husband, say it, of one wife. Okay? So that's where we get the spiritual leader should be a man in the church, a husband of one wife. And we'll get into that next week. Let's read on. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be quiet. Your Bibles might render it as silence. Not a good translation. Silence is not a good translation. That does not mean complete silence because, listen now, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5. Paul acknowledged that women publicly, in the worship setting, prayed and prophesied. Right? Well, Paul is saying that she should exercise quietness in the worship setting to help keep order in the church. If you got it, say got it. Now what Paul does is he gives two arguments to back up this admonition that Christian men in the church should be the spiritual leaders. And the first argument has to do with creation. Say creation. Look at verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, now listen, and please hear my heart. Men and women We're both created by God in His image, right? Both have equal value and equal worth, right? Right? So the issue is not value, not on value, on worth. The issue is only authority. That's all it is. Amen? Authority. Listen, men, you have the authority not to exercise power, but to exercise responsibility as a leader. Amen? In other words, you are responsible to lead your wife spiritually. You are to pray with her, as Paul challenged the men, right? In the previous verse, verse 8, to pray, right? To be the initiator. You are to pray with your wife. You are to read the Word of God with your wife. You are to lead her spiritually. Amen? 
That's being responsible. You're also to nurture emotionally. Because women are emotional. They are. Amen? You are to nurture and love her that way. Amen? And protect her physically. Again, not authority to exercise power. Yo soy el hombre. You do what I say. No. 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 To exercise responsibility. Amen? I would say it this way. It's authority balanced with affection. Amen? The second argument has to do with the fall of mankind. Look at verse 14 with me. And Adam was not the one deceived. We're going to get back to that. It was the woman who was deceived and became a what? A sinner, a transgressor. So even though Eve took the first step into sin, guess what? Adam, say Adam, as the leader, is held responsible. Right? Adam is responsible because he rejected the God-given order. Look at the text again. And Adam was not the one deceived. So what this does, this clarifies that even though Adam ate the forbidden fruit, he did not do so due to the serpent's influence. He did so by taking the fruit from Eve. He listened to his wife. Okay, nothing wrong with listening to the wife, but hey, when you know it's wrong, don't listen to her. He was not discerning. And so he disobeyed God. Eve was deceived. Adam was disobedient. Guys, got it? Now, I want to say this. Paul's not writing to make Eve or women appear as worse sinners than men. Rather, he was grounding, say grounding, his teaching about church leadership in the order of creation. Eve, listen now, Eve inverted God's order of loving leadership when she went from helpmate to leader. You guys with me? She usurped God's design. She usurped God's order. She should have went to her husband. Is this right? Should I do this? Okay, now I want to say this. If you are a single mom, then you are to be the spiritual leader in your home. Because there's no man around to do it. Amen? So do it. You have permission to do that. Someone say amen. Now, now, after dealing with the arguments to back up his admonition of Christian men in the church and even in the home should be the spiritual leaders, now what Paul does, what he does is he provides is provide an, an important contrast related to Eve's role as the first sinner. Now let's look at verse 15 here. Say it with me now. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness and propriety. Now I got to tell you, I got to tell you, whoo, I spent a lot of time here looking at different resources and commentaries and a lot of prayer because this is one of the most difficult verses to interpret in the New Testament. Okay, first of all, let me tell you what this verse is not saying, okay? Okay, it's not saying that women will be saved spiritually. It's not saying that. That the only way for a woman to go to heaven, only way for a woman to be saved is by having babies. Okay, it's not saying that. Okay, and by the way, every woman will be married, every woman, okay, not every woman will, woman will be married and not every woman will have children, Right? The Bible is very, very clear that salvation is granted by grace through faith. Right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We know this, right? We know this. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not childbearing. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift from who? Of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. So it's not saying that women will be saved spiritually. It's also not saying that women will be saved physically. Okay? Stay with me here. This is not an assurance that 
A woman can guarantee safe delivery of children if she lives in faith, love, holiness, with propriety. This makes no sense. And I'll tell you why. Because many women, even godly women, have died in childbearing process. Right? Now let me tell you what this verse is saying. And, and, I, and I, I believe these are the best two interpretations, okay? Interpretation, the first one is this, that women will be saved through the Messiah. Say that. Women will be saved through the Messiah. Now, in the original Greek language, it says she will be saved in the childbirth, through the childbearing. So this has a sense, even though women were deceived and fell into sin, starting with Eve, women can be saved by the Messiah, listen now, whom a woman brought into the world. You guys with me? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Genesis 3, 15, there is a promise given. And God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And the reference to the seed of the woman is what? The virgin birth of the Messiah. He shall bruise your, me, he shall bruise, bruise you on the head, which foreshadows Satan's defeat when Christ rose from the dead. Amen? And you shall bruise him on the head. Refers to Satan's repeated attempts to defeat Christ during his life on the earth. So this is a promise given in the midst of a curse. It's called the proto-evangelium. Say that. Proto-evangelium. This is a compound of two Greek words, and the word protos, meaning first, and evangelion, meaning good news, or gospel. It means first gospel. Say that. So this one verse, and you got to love this, this one verse is the first mention of the gospel in Scripture. Amen? It's the first prophecy of the gospel in the Bible. The words, these words contain the first promise of redemption in the Bible. Someone please say amen. And God says that through a descendant of Eve, a man will come, restore what was lost in the fall, and deal the death blow to Satan. Amen? And so the idea, the idea here is that even though the woman race did something bad in the Garden of Eden by being deceived and falling into sin, the woman race also did something far greater in being used by God to bring the Savior Messiah into the world. Amen? Love it? Amen. Praise Him. So that's the first interpretation. The second interpretation is that women will be saved from reproach. Women will be saved from reproach. Let me explain. Eve fell into sin, right? We know that. We know the story, right? And because of this, dishonor and reproach is on her, and by extension, all women. Well, this verse tells us that women can be saved from this reproach. Follow me. Eve may have caused the fall by stepping out of her God-ordained role, but women can be preserved, that word saved, preserved, and can be delivered from the dishonor and stigma of the fall by raising godly children. Amen? Look at the end of the text. If you, speaking to women, continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety, how you, listen now, how you influence your kids 
is based directly, listen women, on your walk with God. Got it? Show them what it looks like to walk in faith. Show them what it looks like to love Jesus and to love others. Show them what it looks like to live a life of purity and self-control. And I got to tell you, as I was doing my study, came to mind, I thank God that I had a mother who modeled what it looks like to walk in faith. A mother who modeled what it looks like to love Jesus with all of her heart and to love others. What it looks like to live a life of purity with self-control. She's with Jesus right now, and I thank God for her. She consistently and faithfully prayed for me and pointed me to Jesus. And you see, she is the reason why I'm standing in this pulpit right now. Her godly influence, and gosh, I miss her so much. Her godly influence made all the difference in my life. All the difference in my life. So you're ready for the lesson. Value and influence. Say that. Ladies, you have value and you have influence. And I want to say this. The spiritual influence of your children should never be diminished. Never be diminished. That has immense value of the contribution in raising and influencing the next generation. You have value and influence on your children, on your grandchildren, on your great-grandchildren, if you're so blessed to live that long. Amen? And I want to say this. If, you, if you've had a mother who's now with the Lord, be that influence, praise God for that. Praise God for her. If she's alive today, and she's been a godly influence in your life, call her up and say, I thank God for you, Mom for your godly influence and the value she placed in my life. Amen? So let's wrap this up, because I know you guys want to go. Okay? And I just want to say this as I wrap this up, that I appreciate the women of this church. Amen? You can clap. Come on, you can clap. I appreciate you. I appreciate the important work that you do for this congregation. And I want to tell you, Okay, I thank God for your godliness and for your commitment to the cause of Christ. And I want to say this, cry out. Cry out would not be the church it is today. It would not. We're not for the selfless work of our amazing, godly women. So I'll stand.